Voice of the Cape, uh, welcome to this uh, very special simulcast program, which is coming to you live from Voice of the Cape in Cape Town, Radio Islam, Channel Islam International, Gauteng area, Radio Al Ansar in Durban, and IFM in Port Elizabeth. I'm your host, Shafiq Morton. Tonight we chat to members of the Olama and the medical fraternity on the persistent calls for the masajid to be reopened during this coronavirus pandemic and the current lockdown. As many of our listeners will know, two weeks ago an organization called the Majlis, Majlisul Olama through the attorney Zahir Omar wrote a letter to the president urging him to consider the decision to close mosques in South Africa. Their argument? that Muslims are suffering from a quote-unquote spiritual depression, and that as we head into Ramadan, the, closer, the closure of Masajid will have a significant impact on the spirituality of the Muslim community. The presidency, as we know, has very politely declined this request, but the saga is not over yet. Tomorrow, the matter heads to the courts. So this evening we are going to be bringing a medical perspective to this debate aided with uh, a Sharia perspective from um, a scholar, Sheikh Ihsan Talib, who is president of the United Olama Council of South Africa. We're still trying to get him online. But online is Dr. Yusuf Amir from the Islamic Medical Association. He's a specialist urologist in private practice in Durban. In studio, Dr. Salim Parker, also from the Islamic Medical Association. He is a GP from Elsie's River, but also is a religious mass gatherings collaborator with the Global Center for Math Mass Gatherings Medicine. In other words, he deals with the Hajj. And we've got Dr. Shaib Wadi, who is part of the executive of the Islamic Medical Association, and he is a nephrologist. Uh, doctors, assalamu alaikum and welcome to the airwaves. Right, I'm going to quickly start with Dr. Salim Parker, who is in the studio. Um, Social distancing is being practiced, so he's at least uh, two meters away from me across uh, the studio desk. Uh, Dr. Salim, first of all, um, this whole question of the, the reopening the masajid, um, what, is, what was your feeling as a medical practitioner when you heard about this call after the decision to close the masajid had actually been taken before the president actually made the decision? Uh, firstly, we were quite surprised by this uh, um, uh, by this calling. But let's look at what's happening currently. I mean, as Muslims, we know certain activities are um, specifically space uh, and uh, and they. A place uh, orientated, such as, for example, uh, you can only do an Umrah in Saudi, in, in Makkah itself. Then it's time and place uh, restricted, such as Hajj. And then you have others, such as Ramadan, which is coming up now, which is time specific. Mm-hmm. What, are we comp- uh, what are we looking at in opposition to that? We are looking at a virus that doesn't respect time, that doesn't respect place, and currently is on the verge of an exponential increase in South Africa. Yes, we want brotherhood uh, at the masajids to experience the, uh, you know, the, the religious upliftment of Tarawi Salah, for example. The, besides the five uh, compulsory walks, which we're all dearly missing at the moment, but we have to also, and we want that closeness amongst Muslims. 
But this closeness is unfortunately the way that this virus spreads. Mm-hmm. How does it spread? Viruses don't fly. I mean, it's humans that spread it. So the way it spreads is directly when someone coughs in close proximity to you and, and then obviously infects you or indirectly where they cough spreading droplets up to surfaces which the passerby will then touch with their hands for example touch their face and then gets infected as well so this is a dilemma that we currently as medical practitioners sit with where we know that we're facing a rapid exponential increase we're anticipating a rapid exponential increase in the number of cases compared uh, to what we really want to do as muslims which is to be with each other in the masjid and unfortunately the two at this moment are mutually exclusive dr yusuf amir um, in durban i'm going to cross to you what was your take when you first saw the, the Majli saying that they're going to go to court, they're intending to go to court because they feel that it's a violation of the Constitution, that um, uh, the mosques are closed, and obviously accusing um, doctors and uh, scholars of all sorts of names um, because they'd actually closed the mosques. Dr. Amir, your take on this? Brother, yeah, so, Shafiq, firstly, um, to put into perspective, I don't, um, uh, that we, sorry, the line is quite bad, Shafiq, can you hear me? Uh, can you coming through loud and clear from your, from our side. Okay, yeah, so firstly, um, so in response to your question, um, I don't think any, um, you know, sincere, deep, sincere Muslim would obviously call for closure of the masjid, and nor would they oppose uh, any application to have masajid open. So the, uh, this question is uh, at the heart of every Muslim, including us medical practitioners and in whichever field of practice we are in. However, uh, you know, the situation is an unprecedented uh, situation. I mean, world over, it's not just in our country, it's in every part of the world now. Um, the fact that gatherings obviously lead to uh, this virus spreading exponentially. So the medical advice that we develop, like in all other situations, is with scientific data, research, and we, we base our you know, medical advice to the public based on that. And we do that for everything. And the same with the, the current virus. As Muslim medical practitioners, we weigh up the medical science behind things, and then we re- relate it to our esteemed ulama, who then develop a fatwa with regards to uh, whether a, an issue uh, or they were ruling on an issue. So when it comes to the masajid, you know, the same principles apply. We give our input as medical practitioners. We scientifically research the risk factors and the risk that this particular, uh, in this case, the coronavirus poses to communities. We feed this information to our esteemed ulama, and then they issue fatwa. And and that was almost as, as simple as that. Um, but so it, it does come to us as a surprise that um, after we've gone through the correct channels and processes, uh, that there is a group that then uh, sort of feels otherwise. And um, yeah, that, that's how we, we, we do feel. I mean, if, if we've, we've done um, uh, you know anything other than following the correct uh, checks and balances in uh, you know having a situation that we do have. Uh, then it comes to us as a great surprise. Dr. Shaib, yes, yeah, Dr. Shaib Wadi, Islamic Medical Association. Um, 
what what was your feeling when you heard about uh, the Majlis's court challenge to something that most people in the community had thought was a cut and dried issue that it was uh, accepted, and yet this uh, a court challenge and this argument these arguments came to the fore. Uh, so I think uh, as uh, Dr. Yusuf and Salim have mentioned. Um, obviously, from a medical side, we give our medical opinion. And it's not just a medical opinion from the doctors uh, of the IMA or the Muslim doctors. It's, a, it's an opinion which is informed by our colleagues in the Department of Health, colleagues who are involved in microbiology and vaccinology and virology, and, uh, uh, and uh, pulling together the experience around the world on how viruses spread and what the risks are. I think I think one of the things, just to go back a few steps, uh, you know, is, is is to understand the whole the overall strategy around why masjids are closed in the first place. Uh, masjids are not closed because uh, the government specifically wants to punish Muslim people. Uh, everything is closed, as you as you are as you are aware, mm-hmm. uh, including masjids, including. Uh, uh, um, uh, shopping malls, including uh, uh, other businesses, including churches, including synagogues. So, so these things have all been closed on instruction by the government to try and mitigate the spread of this virus. And the understanding is that uh, the virus will spread because people are vulnerable. We haven't seen this before. Our immune systems are not used to it. So it's likely that a lot of people will, will get infected with this virus. While only a very small minority will will die from the virus, about 10% of people may get seriously and extremely ill and need hospitalization. The problem is if a large number of people get infected very quickly, 10% of a large number of people is a lot of people, and our healthcare system will not be able to cope with all those people at the same time, which could have serious knock-on effects uh, in terms of destroying the healthcare system, destroying the economy, and so forth and so on. So, it's a strategy which, is, which has been employed around the world, shutting down all uh, areas where people can congregate, where people can get together to try and slow down the spread, knowing that it's almost impossible to completely stop the spread uh, at this stage. So we are in that context. So uh, what worries me is that, is that uh, you know, the, obviously the Majlis document uh, and the legal uh, representation of some mitigating factors which they believe would be sufficient to, uh, to reduce the, the, the spread of the virus. Uh, and the medical opinion that we've been getting is that you know, any activity, any further activity will increase the spread. So if we move from an activity where uh, certain businesses are allowed to open, it, uh, uh, which is more than what we have now, it will definitely increase the spread. The question is what are we willing to accept? and whether the government should treat Muslims as a special aspect of the community. That means they should only allow masjids to open. So that becomes a difficult one from, from the government side to justify in a lockdown. So as, as, as Muslim health practitioners, we're giving advice based on our knowledge and experience and, give, and based on the advice that we are getting from multiple uh, medical professionals around the world, uh, from multiple authorities around the world. And we are saying that the risk of spread will increase with any congregational activity. It then becomes the responsibility of the government to decide which congregational activities they will allow. And the only activities they're allowing now is what they deem essential services. 
And uh, my colleagues will tell you that those essential services have been where the epicenter of spread is at the moment. Spread is occurring in supermarkets, in pharmacies, in hospitals, because those are the places which are open, in taxi ranks. So the argument that government is already allowing taxi ranks to open, uh, they should allow masjids to open, means we are happy that spread will occur in taxi ranks and hospitals, not just in taxi ranks. So you understand what, what, what we're saying. So I think when you put it into context, what we're really saying to government is that as Muslims, we believe we are exceptional, we are special, we are the only ones who should be allowed to open because uh, God is only important to us and not to anybody else. Indeed, if you've just tuned in, um, this is a simulcast program. It's coming to you live from Voice of the Cape, Radio Islam, Channel Islam International, Radio Al-Ansar and IFM in Port Elizabeth. Our special guests, Dr. Yusuf Amir, Dr. Salim Parker, Dr. Shaib Wadi and Sheikh Ihsan Talib, President of the United Ulama Council of South Africa. The question is, should the Masajid remain open in the light of COVID-19? And of course, we're dealing with a court challenge. It's in court tomorrow tomorrow uh, with the Majlis al-Ulama who believe that the Masajid should be opened. But uh, Sheikh Ihsan Talib, I do believe, uh, President of the uh, United Ulama Council of South Africa, has joined us online. Sheikh Ihsan, assalamu alaikum. Welcome to the program. Wa alaikum assalam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. very much for the invitation and assalamu alaikum to the panelists and the listeners. Sheikh, let's start off. Um, the Islamic maxim, and this is something that uh, uh, 99.10 amount of ulama will, will actually quote, and that um, one has to safeguard public interest and one has to repel harm. Is this the basic principle behind the decision of Uksa to decide to close the masajid down before the presidential decree? Yeah, well, uh, uh, Shafiq, you're absolutely correct. Uh, you know, there is really, you say 99.1 uh, would go 99.99, um, you know, is is the uh, consensus that this Sharia in its entirety um, is one which has the objective of securing that which is in the public benefit, the maslaha al-am, that which is in um, you know the uh, interest of 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 the community, uh, the public good, the public benefit to secure all of that. But also, there can't be any securing of the public benefit and securing thereof means that we also have to repel that which is harmful. So the Sharia in its entirety is all about masalihul um, ibad uh, that which is in the best interest of the creation of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and of course uh, pertaining both to the matters of this dunya uh, and the akhirah uh, in, in, in particular and so absolutely that, that was the point of departure it is the point of departure of, of the ulama across the globe um, to start with the three harams uh, the haram in Mecca in Al-Madinah, in Jerusalem, Al-Masjid Al-Aqsa. This is a common cause. There is a consensus that, that this is the logical, this is the divine obligation upon the Ummah to accept. And that um, in accepting that, we are fulfilling part of what the Prophet ﷺ has indicated that if you are in such conditions of a pandemic and you have patience and you patiently persevere within your homes and uh, 
you are then um, uh, not going out, you are not interacting, intermingling, intermingling. you're basically social distancing inside your homes, you will have the reward of a shaheed. The Nabi Sallallahu said that even uh, if you did not die uh, in that pandemic. And so, yes, it is common cause. Uh, it is of the most fundamental um, uh, sort of understandings of how the Sharia operates. Uh, you know, there is a fundamental uh, principle of la darara wa la darar, which is a fiqh maxim taken verbatim from the words of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam when he said that uh, there shall no, be no infliction of harm and there shall be no reciprocation of harm harm must be removed in all of its forms and and this is the hikmah of the sharia this is the rahmah the hikmah the wisdom the rahmah the mercy the adl and the justice and the maslaha in other words the uh, beneficial value that the sharia has for for humankind no absolutely uh, if you tuned in, if you'd like to uh, send a WhatsApp message, 0722380712. Some messages have been coming on already. This person says it's sad to see that the local Majlis court objection is being covered by the news media in India, fueling overseas Islamophobia. And Islamophobia is a question we will get to later on in the show. Um, this person is saying, uh, so Allah is not the one that decides who gets the illness. That's all I'm hearing from the doctors. Allah is proving to everyone, even if you stay home and sanitize, he can still let you get it. Look at the amount of people getting it on a daily basis. So this dear listener, my advice to you is listen to the program and listen to the experts who are the medical doctors and uh, those who know the Sharia. This person says men don't need the mosque to get spiritually uplifted. Allah wa ta'ala is in our homes too. Interesting point. So, Dr. Uh, Salim Parker, to get back to you, you are a person who have been working as a doctor in large crowds of people, and you've seen a lot in terms of um, communicable virus infections and diseases during the Hajj. Just from you, a speculation, what would happen, just to speculate, if the Hajj were to go forward as uh, people would like it to in many senses, with coronavirus still with us, what would happen? Uh, um, firstly, I don't think the Hajj will proceed if the uh, the Hajj will proceed, but not with uh, foreigners being allowed into the country. Mm-hmm. Um, I can only go back to the meningitis epidemic of 2000, where there were over a thousand cases of meningitis in Saudi Arabia. But more importantly, returning Hujaj, who actually went back home, spread to 14 different countries from the United States in the West to um, Indonesia in the East. Mm. And not only spread it to those Im- in the immediate surroundings, but also to the larger community. So that we have precedents for it uh, as far as disease is concerned already. So as far as the Hajj is concerned, I mean, the fact that Umrah was cancelled um, and that Hajj is literally put on hold at the moment in a country such as Saudi Arabia, which has implemented even more stringent uh, um, measures than we have. I mean, they have curfews. They started it earlier than us. They've got more draconian measures. They also have the army on their side. Yet, they have 10,000 um, infections currently. 
Uh, so it shows that this virus doesn't really know any boundaries. Mm. And again, to put it uh, from a gatherings perspective, and specifically from a religious gatherings perspective, the first last outbreak was in a from a church in South Korea. We know that. From a Muslim point of view, um, the first large gathering was in uh, Malaysia, where half of the first 900 people attended a Jamaat in, in Kuala Lumpur. Then we also have the massive outbreak in India, where out of 14,000 current cases, more than 4,000 can be directly taken back to the Nizamuddin uh, Masjid in New Delhi. So, in, and then we come to South Africa. We know that the church in the Free State, um, where there was a congregation in March, led to a number of uh, spreads leading to a clinic in uh, Gauteng being closed, leading to the uh, one of the opposition leaders in parliament being infected because he also attended that. So mm-hmm. he came back to Cape Town. And whilst uh, Senator Ramaphosa was, uh, was reading out the uh, notes about the uh, implementation of the lockdown, he was actually standing right next to him, possibly could have infected him. The president was uh, shown later to be not carrying the virus. So it shows that um, any mass gathering, which whether it's in a supermarket, Market map, whether it's um, in a masjid, whether it's in a church, whether it's a taxi rank, all gatherings have the potential to spread the virus. Mm-hmm. I'm just quickly sort of just going to quickly go to the WhatsApp. Uh, this is from a sister with all sadness. I love respect for Olama, um, calling uh, other Olama names, etc., etc., etc. All right, uh, people are coming up with some questions. I can't read all of them. Uh, this person says. Um, I know you won't read this, but these guys that want to open the mosque are nuts. All right, I've read that one. (laughs) Um, Dr. Yusuf Amir, I'm not too sure whether um, you are aware of this. Um, A lot of WhatsApps are asking us about this Dr. Rashid or Rashid Buttar, who is talking about uh, falsified pandemic uh, um, statistics or anything. Are you aware of this um, podcast by Dr. Rashid Buttar that has been doing the rounds and almost uh, a couple of times a day us guys in the media are being asked about this interesting doctor. Do you know anything about it at all? Yes, uh, yes, and many many such like hoax sort of uh, messages and WhatsApps and uh, small videos, uh, you know, videos that have been made. Uh, there's so many. It's amazing. Um, you know, I was listening to a, a scholar recently who said that uh, this is fertile ground for any conspiracy theorist, because people's minds are just absorbing anything they hear. And uh, it's, it's, it's so sad because people generally listen to the experts for most of their life, but when the crisis uh, reaches a crunch, they then be- begin to listen to every conspiracy theory, and they need to decipher what is true or not. So anyway, this one uh, that you refer to, I've seen it, I've, I've watched the entire thing. Um, it is interesting, and, and um, you know, if you go to hoax watch, you know, most of these things can be debunked and demythed. Uh, using the, the same skill that people use to, to formulate these things. And so if you, you Google these things, um, you will find something or the other. So with most of these hoax messages and most of the people behind these hoax messages, there's either a disgruntled uh, gentleman or a disgruntled practitioner or a disgruntled, you know, even a specialist in the field. Um, so this guy, if, if you go to the, the website called Hoax Watch, you will see that in 2007, I'm, uh, I could tend to be uh, challenged on that one, but I think it's somewhere there, 2007, 2008, um, you know, he was actually being charged for fraud, and he had multiple cases against him. 
So uh, you, you, just to know the background of the, the guy who's making these claims, and then secondly, he's experimented before with many sort of non-scientific uh, remedies to cure people of cancers and that sort of thing, and nothing's been scientifically proven. So that's the background of the guy making the video. The second thing I, I like to always tell my colleagues and friends about hoax and conspiracy theorists is that a lot of the times, uh, you know, these are people who are very high-achieving people, but oftentimes they do have an underlying uh, mental illness. So if you look at many of these, these, these videos, um, uh, they, you know, only a trained eye, somebody who's trained in, in, in the field of, um, you know, medicine and psychiatry, you can pick up these subtle hints when someone is really, uh, you know, not with, with himself. So in my personal capacity, you know, I've done two years uh, of psychiatry in, in, in London, and I remember very vividly I had a guy coming to me he was arrested at 10 Downing Street, and um, you know, so I asked him, so, sir, what, what, what brought you to 10 Downing Street? They arrested you. You needed such an urgency to get to 10 Downing Street. So his response to me was, uh, Doc, you know, there's a huge threat to the British government. There's an external force about to, to attack us, and nobody will believe my matter, so I had to personally deliver this message. And this guy was... If you were to speak to him as a layman, you would believe every word he said. And then he went on to sell, tell me, I've written a few books. If you go to Amazon, Amazon bookstore, you will find my books. And really, I go to Amazon bookstore, and I see his name. He's an author. And yet he was sitting in front of me, and this guy was totally delusional. He was psychotic. He was grandiose. So he had fixed, unshakable delusional beliefs about what he wanted to, to convey to. At that time, it was... Uh, uh, I forget the, the president's name of the country at that time. But anyway, just to give you an insight, so I, I, my, my dear plea to the, the, to the audience is that whenever you see a hoax message, a conspiracy theory video that has no substantiation and it cannot be proven, always default to something that has exact science to it. It's come to you to, uh, through a, you know, a valid chain of people that you rely on. And unfortunately, you know, the media and the, uh, the, the platform of, um, you know, the Internet has uh, may swayed many people into sort of misinformation, confusion, and that's also been feeding in to the problem we're seeing. So many people are not treating the whole, uh, you know, this whole situation of, of um, uh, distancing, uh, you know, very, very seriously. So unfortunately, these, these videos are not doing uh, people at the front line any service. You're making the life of those who are trying to save lives more difficult by falling prey to these uh, misinformed videos. Right, before we go to Dr. Shoaib Wadi, Dr. Salim Parker, you want to come in there? Yeah, I just want to add something on fake news. You know, in Iran, at one stage, about 2,600 people died because of coronavirus disease. 600 of them died because they believed ethanol prevents the disease. So nearly a quarter of the amount of people uh, who died from the disease, uh, nearly a, a quarter of that same number died because they believed in fake news. So really, and these are Iranians, they are, these are Muslims, but they firmly believed because they were spread fake news that ethanol itself will prevent them from catching the disease. So we have to be really careful of fake news. Right, and WhatsApp has come in here. This person says, Salam, they want the mosque open. I won't send my husband to mosque. He can pray at home, period. 
Close gathering, close gatherings are a sure spreader. Let's just unite, guys. We will overcome this. Uh, Wassalam. So that's certainly a message coming in there. Dr. Shaib Wadi, <clears throat> before we go into other parts of this topic, what is your take as a medical practitioner on this, I would call it a curse, this fitna of, of fake news? Uh, so I think one of the things, that, look, the, the reason we have fake news and we have a lot of information coming out is because obviously social media is very difficult to regulate and to fact check. It's a sort of uh, individual journalism. People uh, choose the material that they believe is uh, important to them and that will positively reinforce their, uh, their beliefs and their ideas. I mean, I think what, what we need to realize now uh, as, uh, as Muslims and as people around the world is that we really are living in a time where, um, you know, we haven't experienced this in any of our lives before. It's a really an unprecedented event which none of us will have anticipated even two or three months ago, even maybe just over a month ago, not a single one of us would have been able to predict the situation that we are in now. And hindsight is really uh, 2020. Think uh, when, before we had our first case, when China started uh, uh, winding up and uh, the countries in Europe started having more cases, what, how, what, what a difference it would have been if our government shut down the airport and didn't allow a single person in and every South African was only allowed to fly back and was quarantined. Uh, it's quite possible that uh, that uh, the epidemic would have had quite a different trajectory in South Africa. Similarly, if we look planning forward, we're planning for a really an unknown entity in our country. And what that means is that people have intense amounts of anxiety. They really are really worried about what's going to happen. And then the, the second aspect is that as Muslims, we have this deep affection and uh, and connection to the masjid. And we know that Ramadan has a has a place which is deeply embedded in every single one of us from the time that we can remember, the time when we were very young. And as Ramadan approaches us, you know, we have this anxiety. Is Ramadan going to be the same? Is our ibadah going to be accepted? What if this is my last Ramadan? And my last Ramadan, I'm not spending it in the masjid. So there is that anxiety. And we need to understand that, you know, from that anxiety, every single person in the country, you know, is going to have a desire to do something to allow them to have some semblance of control. And many of them will then share information which they believe is useful. And for some of them, it is really useful information. But as I said earlier, it's difficult to accept all this information. Some of it is not fact-checked. Some of it is shared very rapidly uh, without people going through and checking the veracity or the truth in that information. And for the layperson, it can become extremely confusing. And, and I don't blame people for getting emotional and upset. They're already on edge. They're already very anxious. And then you get multiple messages, sometimes which are contradictory. And then as somebody pointed out in the group earlier and from the WhatsApp that you received, once you have people who are in positions of leadership, positions of, uh, of influence who are then fighting with each other, using a bad language, being abusive to each other, it really doesn't create the right environment for the lay public to be able to make a decision, to be able to trust those people in positions of authority. So, you know, I think we need to understand each other as people in, in positions of influence and leadership, that we that we understand the, uh, the point of view of the other person, that we have a discourse which is respectful. I mean, uh, in my opinion, the, the Majlis obviously has a right from a legal perspective and from every perspective to, to take uh, this decision to the court. 
uh, and to and to test it in the court. Uh, whether they they win or not, the courts will have to decide. Uh, and people should not get upset if they do that. You know, that's within their rights. Uh, if we disagree with their position as medical practitioners, we should be clear in the reasons why we disagree, and we should stick to our opinion based on our education and the knowledge that we have, which is imperfect. We understand that. And then if there are ulama which, which are willing to, to take this uh, uh, advice which are being uh, brought forward by the medical practitioners uh, and then make a decision, we should be able to, to, to stick to that, to that debate. At the moment, with the lockdown way it is at the moment, we don't have uh, any choice anyway. But once uh, the lockdown starts getting relaxed, I'm sure there will be different opinions as to what is the correct way for the lockdown to be relaxed what will be the, the correct way for the subject to open, and then we will always have to apply our minds going forward in that, in that direction anyway. Right, if you just tuned in, this is a special uh, simulcast program. It's coming to you live from Voice of the Cape in Cape Town, Radio Islam, Channel Islam International, Radio Al-Ansar in Durban, and Radio IFM in Port Elizabeth. We're talking to the ulama and medical fraternity on persistent calls for the masajid to be reopened during this coronavirus pandemic and the current lockdown. The background to this is that two weeks ago, the Majlis al-Ulama, through the attorney Zahir Omar, wrote a letter to the president urging him to reconsider his decision to close mosques in South Africa. Part of the argument, we'll get to the argument details a bit later on, we are suffering from a spiritual depression, and as we head into Ramadan, the closure of the Masajid will have a significant negative impact on the spirituality of our community. Uh, online, Sheikh Ihsan Talib, President of the United Ulama Council of South Africa, Dr. Yusuf Amir, a specialist urologist in private practice, Dr. Salim Parker, a GP in Elsie's River, Cape Town, and Dr. Shoaib Wadi from the Islamic, Islamic Medical Association. He's a nephrologist. Now, uh, so, uh, certain WhatsApp messages are saying, why is this program so biased? What about um, the opposing view? Well, we have tried to um, interact with the opposing view with uh, very little success and even less success in coherence. I'm going to say that as diplomatically as I can. I'm now going to turn to Sheikh Ihsan Talib. Uh, Sheikh, first of all, um, I have been talking about the, the scenario of, of fake news. Would you classify fake news as fitna in terms of what is happening right now? Shafiq, uh, I think... Um you know, from the point of view, again, of, of the Sharia, if one considers that um, the ulama, in coming to the conclusion as to how they, how they understand the current scenario, how they understand the current um, uh, pandemic, and, and how they then formulate their views pertaining to um, the conduct and, and, and how they uh, basically issue fatawa that will regulate conduct and behavior, etc. I think it is of critical importance that we understand that based on Quranic text, which is um, also incontrovertible, incontrovertible, that is not really subject to controversy, which is common cause. It, 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 it provides that um, the ulama, when they do not have knowledge 
of a particular discipline that they are obliged to consult with the specialists in the field. Mm-hmm. And um, mm-hmm. when it comes to, of course, the medical issues, the epidemiological issues that we deal with, public health issues, the ulama do not understand these issues. They do not have knowledge of these issues. We do have explicit text. I don't know how we explain away the explicit text of the Prophet ﷺ when he speaks about do not mix those who are healthy with those who are infected. Do not put them in the same space. Run away from a person with a contagious disease as you would from a lion and etc. The Nabi Muhammad spoke about how you don't go into an area which is afflicted by an epidemic and if you're inside it, you don't leave that place because you don't want to cause the virus to transfer from one place to the other. We have all of these texts. But we are obliged to consult with the experts. Mm-hmm. Our deen makes it an obligation. The ulama cannot issue an fatwa. They cannot issue a verdict pertaining to anything which they don't have specialized knowledge of without consulting with those. This is common cause. Allah Ta'ala says in the only Quran, فَاسْأَلُوا أَهْلَ الذِّكْرِ إِن كُنْتُمْ لَا تَعْلَمُونَ And consult and inquire from those who are specialists in the field if you do not know. And so when we're talking about um, this particular uh, uh, um, uh, epidemic, the pandemic that we are faced with as human society, I, I wish to remind our community that as the Muslim Judicial Council in particular, we had issued the fatwa on the basis of our consultation with the experts in the field as our deen, as Allah requires of us, because our deen is a deen of rationality. It's a deen, you you can't be emotionally attached to this deen to say that you're going to run into a battlefield and into a fire and you're not going to take precaution not to get burnt. This deen is about taking logical precautions, taking logical steps in your decisions that you make. And because of these logical um, uh, consultations and sessions that we've had with our Muslims, our Muslim expertise who are leaders within our country, within their fields, the ulama and the MJC have long before Long before President Ramaphosa, in fact, called for the lockdown of places of worship, we have preceded that particular uh, uh, um, announcement by President Ramaphosa to, in fact, pronounce in our fatwa that it is our religious obligation during this particular period in time to suspend the congregational prayers and that um, the congregational prayers and the Jumu'ah prayers be, be suspended. And that, of course, alhamdulillah, we had most of the masajid simply calling their, um, you know, adhan. And the adhan was then modified in accordance with the sunnah of the beloved Rasul, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, which then, instead of calling people only to come to the success and come to the salah, the Nabi sallallahu guidance was to then say, Make your prayers in your homes.
And so this is what was done before there was a government imperative that came through because from the MGC's perspective and the ulama and the fatwa that was given, we understood that this is a divine obligation that we are required to follow under these circumstances. We need to be able to obviously uh, make our uh, deliberations and make our decisions relevant to the context in which we find ourselves. And and, and this is the problem that, that unfortunately we are facing is that many do not um, look at the relevance of the context in which they find themselves with the degree of urgency and with the degree of necessity. You know, there's a maxim uh, in our fiqh, in our jurisprudence that says, that the verdict of a particular matter, anything uh, for that matter, is a byproduct. It is a consequence of your conceptualization, of your understanding of that problem. So you can't give a hukum of, of, of anything on anything unless you have a good and solid understanding of it. And because the ulama are not medical practitioners, because the ulama do not understand epidemiology, the ulama do not understand public health, they then have the humility, they then have to show the humbleness to engage and consult with Muslim medical um, medical practitioners who would then guide them in order to help them formulate the required. This is what our ulama Shafiq, of course, in, in current contemporary discourses, referred to as al-ijtihad al-jama'i. It's a multidisciplinary type of ijtihad where the processes of, uh, of, of, of hukum formulation incorporates fully uh, the disciplines which we all believe to be part of the knowledge which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala glorifies in the Holy Quran. All forms of knowledge in the Holy Quran stands glorified, is elevated, is praised in the Holy Quran. And so in order for us to um, really come through with the requisite understanding of how fatawa is to be uh, issued during um, complex uh, times and challenges, we we need to look at those multidisciplinary um, uh, consultative processes which then allow the ulama to come to a uh, balanced to a, uh, a, 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 a logical and a rational decision which incorporates revelation and incorporates reason. So, Shafiq, in the same vein, I am not a person that's going to be going into fake news. And What knowledge? We general, as lay people, we do not understand this beast. We, there's no way that we can make head or tail. What it does, it causes mass confusion. It causes mass hysteria. Nothing in the deen can be based on, on, on foundations and, and principles of, of that kind. Indeed, and uh, some WhatsApps coming through, um, this uh, criticizing me quite a bit, that's okay. This person says, in court papers, the majlis even confirm they are not speaking on behalf of all Muslims. I know that all our panelists will say that the big danger about that is that the public perception is that they actually are, and that puts us in a bad light. Um, this person says, if you could not get someone from the opposing side, why do you not, as a responsible journalist, ask the pertinent questions to the group you have in front of you? Okay, you can decide whether I've asked the right questions or not. Get a copy of the court papers and see the detail. Well, I can assure you, dear listener, that I have read all the court papers and all the submissions. I even interviewed advocates of Hir Omar, uh, and I'll put it on public record. He was unable 
to answer a lot of the questions that we posed to him. Just a quick uh, um, issue with uh, um, Sheikh Ihsan Talib, and then I'm going to go back to our medical experts. Sheikh Ihsan, one thing that uh, perhaps we haven't emphasized enough, that the, the maqasid, or the underlying principle, principles of Sharia, sacred law, there are five basic principles, and we understand that the first uh, um, maqsid is uh, the protection of life. Surely this is the big departure point in our discussion. Yeah, uh, just maybe to uh, uh, for for integrity, uh, academic integrity perspective, there are some. Um, yes, hifz al is regarded by a vast, uh, uh, I think, majority uh, that it is the first of these um, um, uh, prerequisites which uh, form the uh, objectives, the higher purposes, or the intents of the Sharia. Hifz al preservation of life and promotion of life. In other words, when we promote life, we then also ensure that we put all mechanisms and measures in place that will ensure that we do not put life uh, at risk and that we don't subject and compromise uh, the, life, uh, the lives of, of human beings. Um, others believe that have the deen becomes for that. It is academic. Um, it doesn't mean that have the deen and, and have the haya are in any kind of um, uh, contradiction uh, in terms of a a, 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 a hierarchy. It is equally important. And so there can't be any deen without life. Allah Ta'ala certainly makes life uh, you know, sacrosanct. And uh, our beloved Rasul Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam has, of course, uh, followed suit. And so when we're talking about a maqasidi approach uh, to the deen, you know, it is one where um, we really utilize the maqasid of the sharia as a framework for interpretation, a framework for deliberation around research, um, how to how to approach research questions and utilizing the preservation of, of deen, uh, preservation of life, preservation of intellect and, and, and aql, as well as our dignity and our honor, as well as that of family and lineage, so preservation of family, preservation of lineage, as well as of, uh, you know, property and uh, wealth and property rights, etc. They form the bases, the foundational principles. These are not a, this is not a closed list. Our ulama today in this world would add um, areas such as hurriya, as freedom, areas such as equality, al-tasawi, uh, etc. as part and parcel of those higher purposes of the sharia. And uh, yes, um, it is what, what we opened with in terms of confirming that the masalih and and the word maqasid and masalih are sometimes used interchangeably. What are those foundational values and principles that we believe uh, that the, the sharia in its entirety had been revealed by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to come and actually protect, to come and promote, and to come and safeguard within society. And so I think um, uh, this is, is, is such a uh, shafiq to, to, to not under, undercut uh, uh, the, the value of, of course, the relevance of al-maqasid in, in um, every aspect of, of our deliberations in the Sharia. Um, uh, but in this instance, we, we actually have explicit texts 
You know, the Sharia is a, a, a tool of interpretation as well. And, and, and it, it guides us in terms of elevating that which is priority over that which is of lesser importance and to ensure that we don't elevate something which is important uh, over something which is more important and something which is lesser important over something which is important. The maqasid becomes an important interpretational tool for us to come to the correct understanding of the interpretation of text. But in this instance, we are sitting with a wealth of explicit text in hand from our beloved Rasul sallallahu alaihi wasallam, how to conduct ourselves, how what we should consider within the context of a pandemic, the pandemic and its um, uh, uh, constituent um, uh, uh, sort of um, you know the knowledge that makes up the understanding of of where we stand with this pandemic. Of course, we take from our uh, experts, we take from the um, professionals and the experts in the discipline, and so. And you should think, I would just like to, to, to add the point that, to a point which was made early on by uh, Dr. Yusuf, I think it was. You know, when, when we say that, um, you know, among the ulama, that um, the, the, the one side, um, uh, uh, when they disagree with the other side, that there is a lack of um, academic integrity, or let us just say lack of integrity in the way in which the one side expresses itself about the other. That gives, for me, I must make this point here, it gives the impression as if there is a mutual reciprocation of this kind of objectionable behavior. But wallahi, the objectionable objectionable behavior on the part of ulama comes from one side. The community needs to understand this. Our beloved Rasul sallallahu alayhi wa sallam had spoken about how a group of people who are overtly obsessed with religiosity, in other words, with the outward expressions and the outward um, display of worship and forms of worship. But the Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said, they are the worst of people. In the context of this that the Prophet ﷺ was referring to, and we all know this, these are hadith in the context of the khawarij. And these khawarij didn't even spare, besides the fact that we know that the um, devastating and the, 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 uh, the, the, the terrible impact that they had in, in history, they were, were the ones who also uh, killed uh, Sayyidina Ali radiallahu an, and, and wars were fought at, at their behest. The Prophet ﷺ himself was not saved from this mindset of the khawarij. In fact, our ulama say that this person, by the name of Dhul Khuwaisirah, he is the father of the khawarij. And he, in fact, uh, had an exceptionally arrogant attitude towards the Prophet ﷺ himself. And mm-hmm. we know that at the time when the Prophet Sallallahu was distributing the booty um, amongst uh, the Sahaba on a specific occasion, this person, Dhul Khawaisra, came to the Prophet and he had the audacity and the gall to address the Prophet Sallallahu as follows. And he said, I'idil ya Muhammad, Muhammad, be just. Because what you are doing now is not the, the conduct of somebody who is conscious of Allah. The arrogance that this person had 
and the sense of being even, you know, looking down on the Prophet ﷺ was not even spared the Holy Prophet ﷺ himself. I think the point I want to make was the Prophet ﷺ, when the Sahaba wanted to smite the neck of this person, said, leave him alone, for he indeed has companions. He are of a group of people that when you look at the way they perform salah, you will look at your own salah and think um, nothing of your own salah. You will look at the way they perform siyam and you will think nothing of the of your own siyam. Prophet says, And the way in which they read the Qur'an, you will also look down in, in your own recitation of the Holy Qur'an. But the Nabi says, But their recitation of the Qur'an does not even transcend their throats. They will have no benefit out of there. Yeah, sorry, Sheikh, I have to... Um Edit you a bit there. Um, hey, yes, I'm uh, so sorry. Uh, not yes, a problem because I want the doctors to have their, the WhatsApps are flying in. Uh, unfortunately, I cannot deal with all of them. But I think, uh, uh, Sheikh, just very, very quickly because I want each doctor to have their say. Um, the prominent question coming out why is Uksa, United Ulama Council of South Africa, being a friend of the court tomorrow? If you can just answer that one in 30 seconds. Yeah, so of course, as, as we have said, that um, this is the position that we have taken. Uh, it is one where it has a relevance to the entire Muslim Ummah. We can see how the world, in the world, what has happened, for example, in Pakistan, what has happened in India, what has happened also in the UK, that this has given rise to serious problems of Islamophobia in the community. There is no way that the rest of our community, we less than 2% or 2% in this country, there's no way that the rest of society will make these distinctions say that this is a small group that is actually uh, requesting this uh, special uh, dispensation from the government. It is absolutely essential that the record be straight uh, in our country that this was not the request uh, which we, uh, of course, are opposed to uh, by any stretch of the imagination of the Muslim Ummah, but they were a small, small minority of people. Shukran, uh, Sheikh Ihsan Talib. I'm going to quickly do a rush around of our doctors who have been very patiently waiting. I'm going to quickly go to Dr. Shaib Wadi. Uh, one minute, 30 seconds for your concluding remarks. I'm sorry to confine you like that. No problem. I mean, I think uh, from the Islamic Medical Association and the majority of Muslim doctors and health professionals in the country, we can only, as, as we mentioned earlier, all of us, we can only give uh, our knowledge based on a medical uh, perspective. And, our, and we know from, from experience in South Africa and around the world and what's currently happening, as I said, that the virus is spreading and will continue to spread. Um, and our goal is to try and mitigate and reduce once the public health authorities tell us that it's safe for congregational uh, uh, activities to occur in any way, that will mean businesses will be able to reopen, uh, congregational and groups of people will be able to pray together, and I'm sure there will there will deep conditions under which that can occur. And we will then have to look at that. Until then, we are bound, uh, you know, by the regulations that government has set, and also from our understanding as medical practitioners to try and protect people in the public, not just the Muslims in South Africa, but all of us. We don't live in a, in a community where Muslims only talk to other Muslims, only link up with other Muslims. We live in a community where we are intermingling and, and entwined with each other. And once things start opening up, we will all be opening up together. Once, if masjids are going to be allowed to open, churches will be allowed to open, synagogues will be allowed to open, everything will 
will open up. And under that, those circumstances, the risk of the virus spreading much faster will definitely increase. Dr. Yusuf Amir, your, your concluding remarks. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Just in conclusion, I think uh, the time has come for us now to move on and to plan for the future. And uh, in every, every Muslim's deep desire that they could get back to the masajid, they could have salah in the masajid, they could have all the various aspects and the, the, uh, the, the spirituality of the masajid. And when we look around us, we don't have to look too far. You see that many of the multinationals have, have began planning already. They've already gone a step ahead and they've found that, you know, innovatively, uh, their workers are going to be affected by this condition, and they've set in. Um, they've already set in motion protocols. They split their workforce. They've made rigid protocols with regards to sanitization, in terms of social distancing, having night shifts and day shifts. So, for me, I, I would like to leave that with our ummah, that uh, we currently have no choice. Uh, the disease is serious. It's catastrophic. It's unprecedented. We have to listen to the majority medical. Uh, view on this. But in this meantime, we have, let's plan, and when the massage do open, how we can still be part of this workforce to maintain the flattening of the curve. The second point I like to make is that this virus is real. And why I say this is I have personal first-hand experience with this virus, with family members who have attended my hospital. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, it shudders me to think of any more of my family members ending up in this situation. And uh, more than that, Friends that I know dearly, ulama that I respect dearly. I know many of my senior asatis are old people, people who I would love to, to see them live much longer with their shades of ours. So this is a real deep expression from my heart. I've seen the effects of this virus. Please help us uh, and don't sink the ship. Thirdly, you know, we should try and refrain from minority views. There will always be minority views in any discussion. But it's always, you know, it's always prudent to go with the majority view, obviously, within, within obviously, restrictions. But if we have minority views that are unsubstantiated and incorrect and false, which we've recently been receiving a lot of on social media, verify it first and then make your decision. And finally, I say to most of my colleagues and friends, do what you always do. When you get sick, you contact your local medical practitioner and you follow his advice. And this virus is none different from any of the other viruses and any of the other conditions. In my field of practice, I get people calling me at any time of the day at night for medical advice, and I give them advice, and most, if not all of them, listen to my advice. And I can't see why there should be a change of heart at this point in time that is so critical. Shukran for that. And Dr. Salim Parker, your concluding remark. I'm very generous. I've given you 29 and a half seconds. Firstly, I was intrigued by this, um, by this uh, accusation of being biased. I don't have a single colleague who actually opposed the uh, closure of the mosque. What did that buy us? It bought us time. What did us buy that time for? Let's hear what happened in, uh, do it in 15 seconds, what happened in, the, in, in England. A fatwa was passed that doctors don't have to fast on the days that they on duty. Why? Because they're working 12-hour shifts, they have to save lives. A colleague of mine in Italy who works 8-hour shifts goes in diapers to work because she, has, she only has one set of personal protection equipment. She has to 
not that she must make sure she's not going to eat or drink because she has to get out and then change the change the uh, personal protection equipment. So what does she do? She sacrifices. She wears diapers in case she needs to wet herself so that she can save lives in the presence of a lack of equipment. So we bought time for us. We don't have much time left, and to, in order to preserve that uh, edge that we have so far, we've got to adhere to social distancing, to to the. Uh, to the uh, prevention of mass gatherings until it is safe. And it is going to come. The time for us to get together again is going to come. We just need a bit more time apart so that we can be back together again, inshallah. And walikum salam, our special guest, Sheikh Ihsan Talib, President of United Ulama Council of South Africa, Dr. Yusuf Amir, Dr. Salim Parker, Dr. Shaib Wadi. Gentlemen, shukran to you. This has been a special simulcast program coming to you live from Voice of the Cape, Radio Islam, Channel Islam International, Radio Al Ansar, and IFM in Port Elizabeth, discussing the issue of uh, whether the masajid should remain closed. Unanimous decision from the medical fraternity and unanimous. Uh, a fatwa of the ulama is that the masajid for our health to save our lives should for the time being remain closed. From myself, Shafiq Morton, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah.